We have been in a study, studying the kingdom of God, and we've been using the book of Ephesians as our backdrop. Been in this study for um, pretty much a year now, and we're in Ephesians chapter 4. We're in Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 17 through 19 today. The title of the sermon this morning is Leave the Past Behind. We'll read our text, and then we'll pray, and we'll, we'll dive right in. I'll be reading and teaching from the New American Standard Bible this morning. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, he says, So I say, this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Church, this is the word of God. Let's pray as we jump into it. Father, we thank you for your word. And this morning, God, it is good for us. It is good for us to know your love and to lean into your love, to lean into the love of our good Father. Help us now by the power of your spirit to receive and engage and apply your word, that your word would go down into us and affect changes, to cause us to be more like Jesus, to cause us to be more enlightened, more aware of your presence and your love for us and for the world around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, the Apostle Paul has been explaining who we are as people, as people who have been called by God. And we're people who have responded to God and have been adopted by God into his family. He's been talking about the kingdom family of God in this section of scripture that we've been studying. And we've been studying the most amazing news about who we are. We've seen that we are changed, that we're different from what we once were. That we're a people, we learned at the very beginning of Ephesians, who were created by God to be with God, and that we're, we became separated from God because of our sin, but we're, we're a people who God loves. We're a people who God pursued. We're a people for whom God has sacrificed and has saved. And so we're now a people who can receive God's love and walk in God's love to know the love of the Father for us. And so we are a diverse people. We're drawn together, very different individuals coming together. We're a unified people, not a uniform people. We're unique as individuals, but it is the love of God and the salvation of God through Jesus Christ that brings us together to live out this new life. And so as we see in our passage today, we are a changed people. We're people who continue to change, continue to grow more like Jesus. And so what Paul wants the church to hear today in this passage is that you are now different. You're different than you once were. You're different than the world. And he says this in verse 17. He says, so I say, and I affirm together with the Lord that you no longer walk as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. I love that passage because it tells me every time I read it that I am no longer who I once was. And that is good news for me. 
We don't live like we used to live. We don't have to be slaves to the things that we once were slaves to. We don't have to do the things that the rest of the world tells us we need to do. And last week, Dom exposed us to the idea that our unity as God's kingdom family is a lot like a symphony that each one of us has a part to play, and that unless each one of us are playing our part and, and, and coming together to participate and use the gifts that God has given us, then the fullness of the symphony and the completeness of the symphony, sometimes even the melody of the symphony, it's incomplete. It it's, doesn't come together. But as this symphony plays, as our life together in Jesus plays, each one of us demonstrates the love of God. We demonstrate it in our own life, and we demonstrate the love of God in our life together as the church. And this life together in Jesus is something that is radically different than our culture. See, the world will notice this new life because we live differently. We love differently. We have people in our life, other people in our life, and and they're good for us, and we're good for them. We're a community, and and the community around us, outside the church, our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, they will notice our life together. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it refers to the people of God as as a new culture or as a race of people living out the love of God together. So we are a changed people. We no longer walk and the futility of our mind. And Paul points out this ancient truth that life lived apart from God is futile, right? It's, it's just utter futility to live apart from God. Life on my own terms certainly is futile. I, I know the futility of life lived apart from God. But Paul specifically refers to the futility of our mind as a reference to how we think, obviously, but also how we make sense of life, how we receive and interpret the world around us, Uh, That's according to our mind, as he would say. What we plan, how we make our plans, how we come to our moral judgments, our attempts to do good things in life. Basically, Paul is saying that how we view and respond to the world is futile and pointless when we live our life apart from God. And this futility of mind, as he calls it, is how the rest of the world lives as they live their lives apart from God, doing their best with their own minds to interpret the world around them. Now, we need to be clear here about what Paul is saying and what he's not saying, okay? Paul is not saying that non-Christians don't do good things or or can't do good things. Certainly, non-Christians can be creative and generous and nice and kind. We know that to be true. But what Paul is saying is that a life that is not conformed to the will of God will ultimately prove to be worthless, futility, apart from life with God. What he's saying is that our best efforts at fulfillment are ultimately futile without God, that our success and wealth, that our great ideas and pursuits, they all prove to be worthless, ultimately worthless apart from God, so that a life lived apart from God is futile. And so Jesus in Mark 8, uh, kind of responding to this idea and speaking into this idea, asks this question, and he says, and what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but you lose your soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? And what he's hinting at and what Paul has been pointing us to over and over again is the idea that we were created by God, but we were created to be with God. We were created to live our life with God as God's people. And so even our best efforts at life apart from God is pointless. 
And so Paul is saying that if we want to live a life of purpose and value and meaning as God intended for us to live, then we must cling to our new life that God has intended for us to have. That God is saying, here's the plan, and here's the power and the strength and the playbook to get there. And he's, he's given us the ability to walk this out. Now, just a few weeks ago, at the very beginning of chapter 4, the Apostle Paul begs the church. I love that language. It comes out explicitly in the New Living Translation. He begs the church to live out this new life. He says this in Ephesians 4, verse, verse 1. He says, I beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. He says, always be humble, always be gentle, be patient with each other, make allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourself united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace, for there's one body, one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. And so as we see, when we put that passage and the, the reality of that passage together with what we're looking at today, we see that there are two, two main distinctions as we live out this new life uh, in Christ. The first distinction is that we live in unity. That's what we saw at the beginning of chapter 4. We live in unity with God, and we live in unity with one another. That, that God has removed the barriers that keep us from intimacy with him, Right? He did that through the cross of Jesus Christ by forgiving our sin. And then by giving us the Holy Spirit, we are now able to grow into the likeness of Christ, our character changing. And so now the things that separates us, the sin that separates us from each other, and being able to relationally connect and be relationally faithful to one another, those things have been addressed as well by his Holy Spirit in us. And so unity is not a lofty dream. Unity is not a pipe dream for the church. Unity is a present reality that comes through the power of the gospel. And so we see this new life in Christ is unified. There's unity with God and one another. But the second distinction that we, see in, in, that we see in our passage today is that we don't only live unified, we live in purity. Our life together is marked by unity and purity. Our lives are distinct from the secular world in these ways. Our life together in Jesus is lived by the power of God's Spirit, enabling us to pursue unity and purity as we grow to be like Jesus. And we've been looking at the unity of God's kingdom family for the last several weeks at the beginning of chapter 4. And now today, Paul is shifting his focus on the purity of God's people, and he's addressing the way we walk this out. And we've seen throughout the book of Ephesians, God loves us, and he's called us to live life together in unity with him and others, that he's given us his love to enjoy, and he's given us his love uh, to share. And because God loves us, and because he is faithful, he has called us to be purity, to be pure, to walk in purity. And God gives us his spirit, which creates in us the desire to be more like Jesus. The desire to leave old things and old patterns and old ways and, and old wisdom behind and pursue what God has set before us. This is the relationship that God has saved us into. God has called us to himself, and he's given us things to stay with him where he is, to pursue right ways of living. And so God loves us and saves us and adopts us. And as we receive his love and as we walk by his Holy Spirit, we are continually made righteous as we step by step walk through life, as we grow to obey the love of God and the will of God. And God 
cares about our actions. He cares deeply about our actions, just as you care deeply about the actions of people that you're in relationship with. Because our actions are what define our relationships, right? God cares about our actions because our actions are our half of our relationship with God. You can't have a healthy marriage if only one person is willing to participate in love. You can't have a healthy friendship if it's a one-way street. A healthy relationship requires two people who are committed to a common cause. And God cares about our actions because our actions define our relationship. And so sin is a big deal with God. It's a big deal because it represents a separation. Sin separates us from God. And apart from God, we used to, we formerly lived in sin, and we were disconnected and separated from life with God. And so God has gone to great lengths through Jesus stepping out of heaven, coming to earth, dying on the cross, being raised from the dead to defeat the power of sin. God's gone to great lengths to deal with our sin and bring us back to him. And so when we choose sin as a Christian, when I choose sin, I'm choosing to live and make decisions apart from God. Even though God is always with me, he's always present. He never leaves me, he never forsakes me, but if I don't choose relationship with God, if I wake up and I choose my old patterns of life, I essentially turn my back to God. And even though he's there, I'm not participating in relationship with him. Even though his love is toward me, I'm like the rebellious spouse in a marriage, turned with my back to my spouse. And so because God loves us and wants us to be with him, God cares about how we live. If God wasn't loving, he wouldn't care about sin. If God didn't want us to live in his peace and in his presence, if God didn't want us to live in his purposes, he wouldn't help direct our lives away from the sin that separates us. He wouldn't help direct our lives toward Jesus, which is the only way to have peace with God. But God does love us. That's the theme of the entire Bible is God loves us and he does want us to live our lives in him and for his purposes. And so Paul creates this contrast we see in our passage today. And he does this by describing the futility of a life that's lived in sin apart from God. And he describes this condition apart from God like this. This is the next verse now in Ephesians 4 verse 18. He says, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from life, of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they having become callous. And so this condition, this condition apart from God, it's described as being marked by these, these three things, ignorance, a hardness of heart, and callousness. Now, it's important for us to, first of all, address ignorance, because when Paul refers to ignorance, the word he's using here, he's not just talking about, you know, the, the innocent ignorance or the cute ignorance that a child might have. Like when my four-year-old does something bad, he, he can do that out of ignorance. He's not doing it with, a, with malicious intent. He's just ignorant of it. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's using the same word that he has defined very clearly in the book of Romans, and it's a word that he uses to describe the hearts and actions of people who are aware of God but do not act according to their convictions about God. And so they're acting ignorantly about it, like they know God, but they, they play dumb, acting ignorantly about the ways of God. And this is why ignorance is followed by the other phrases, hardness of heart and callousness. 
These three expressions all describe the same condition, the same thing that Paul's talking about, a, a heart that's turned away from the life of God and a heart that is pursuing sin. So someone who's living with their back toward God, pursuing an alternate direction. And in a lifestyle of in pursuit of sin, we are far from God. And Paul describes this state as dark. Look at verse 18. He says, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God. Sin cuts us off from life with God. In our sin, we're excluded from life with God. And so sin isn't just about breaking rules. You hear that, like, I, don't, I can't really get into this Christianity thing. It's just a whole bunch of rules you have to follow. Christianity is not about a bunch of rules you have to follow. God's not into a bunch of rules. It's so much more than that. It's so much more serious than that. We're called into relationship with God. Sin is about us separating ourselves from life with God. Sin is about missing out on the love and missing out on the purpose and, and purposefully avoiding the joy and the direction that we were created for. See, there's a real horror in persistent sin, because a life of persistent sin draws us away from the life-giving love and the life-giving peace, and that is our intimacy with Jesus. A life in persistent sin draws us away from God's purpose and plan, because sin separates us from our only source of true love and purpose, and the persistence, the persistent absence of God's love and the persistent absence of God's peace in our life leads us to become hard-hearted and calloused, as Paul continues in this passage. And I, I like this term calloused because I think we can all relate to callousness. Uh, there was a long season in my life, probably longer than my wife uh, appreciated, but there was a long season in my life where I drove old Volkswagens. And I, like old, like 50s and 60s, buses only. And so that is a fun lifestyle, but you don't engage in that lifestyle and only drive old Volkswagens and not work on them. It's hand in hand. If you're driving an old Volkswagen, you are always in the process of working on it. Sometimes at a rest area, sometimes in front of your girlfriend's house, sometimes on the side of the road, sometimes at a red light, okay? You're always working on your bus, and it is almost always searing hot is almost always dripping something on you, and, and half the time it's on fire in some way. And so driving an old Volkswagen and, and multiple old Volkswagens, because they're all in different states of being repaired, whether you're driving them or not, it, you, bu you build up calluses on your hands. And so I'm like adjusting the valves on the side of the road before I, you know, throw a rod in my, you know, I, I, it, before the head destructs. And it's like searing hot, but I'm like, oh, this doesn't hurt as bad as it used to hurt. This is awesome, you know? I developed these calluses that were very helpful for me. They insulated me, right? They kept me from being electrocuted. I'm like, oh, there's the problem, you know? And put the wire back on, I'm like, oh, that was alive. Wow, you know? Thank God for that callus right there. So those calluses were a benefit to me. They were a buffer between me and and the things that were going to hurt me, right? But the calluses that Paul is describing are not beneficial, although they function in the same way. These calluses are something that harden our hearts to life with God. Whereas my calluses kept me from pain, right? These calluses keep us from God's presence. They keep us from discerning the still small voice of God. It's possible to get to a point in life where we've persistently allowed the sin in our life to grow calluses upon our heart. 
to where our life with God is at a point where we can't even discern his will. It's at a point where we don't even hear his voice. And in verse 19, Paul describes what happens when we get to that point where we've allowed hardness or callous to be built up in our heart because we keep choosing and persisting in our sin. Verse 19, it says, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. This is a tragic place, hopeless, loveless, godless place, because this is a desperate place of no restraint. What's happened is they've just thrown all restraint off, and without restraint, we act with unrestrained freedom in whatever manner the futile, godless mind directs us in, in our our best estimation, giving our best wise counsel. And Paul continues, and he says that when we live like we used to live, when we live as the Gentiles live, is what he's saying, as the rest of the world lives, remember, he's cautioning us, don't live like they live. When we jump back into that lifestyle, we become greedy, he's saying. He's, that word greediness at the end, that's an unsatisfaction. What he's talking about is the discontentment that, we, that we're left with. He describes a place where in our sin, we're calloused, we abandon restraint, we act on impulses, we dive headfirst into whatever seems best to us, and at this place, this is where we discover the deep, dark horror of sin and separation from God. And there are two main ways that sin devastates us. The first way that sin devastates us is it separates us from God. We are now persistently living a life away from God when we choose over and over again to turn away from God. And the horror of separation from God is that our unrestrained pursuit of satisfaction, our unrestrained pursuit of pleasure and contentment is never satisfying. It's never enough. And apart from any life with God, we have no choice and we become a slave to sin. We're stuck in old habits, old patterns of pursuing satisfaction, of hopelessly seeking pleasure and contentment from the same unsatisfying, unfulfilling things again and again. We become a slave to sin. And sin ultimately destroys us because we were not made to stand alone and apart from God. But sin doesn't just separate us from God. That's the first way that sin can devastate us. The second way is that sin hurts us and affects everybody around us. Although we tend to think of sin as a private and personal matter, it's not. Sin is a community destroyer. It's a marriage destroyer. It's a relationship, friendship, co-worker destroying force. And it sucks everyone around us into its hopeless vacuum. Even our our quiet, closet, personal, no one knows about this kind of sin. It affects us in ways and turns us off to the good things of God around us. And and it affects and sucks people into the hopeless void, the hopeless, godless vacuum that is our sin. The pursuit of sin is no longer something that people hide in our culture. It has become an outward goal of our culture to rebel against God. Uh, There are a couple of huge ways where this takes face, and I've been doing youth ministry for almost a year now, and one of the, two of the the main areas where I see a, a struggle in our culture, where kids are dealing with the wisdom of the world around them, and, and it's hard to make a good godly decision. One of them is in the area of sexual purity, because in, in the world around us, 
The people that are, that are influencing and trying to give good advice to our teens outside of the church are encouraging them to have sex before they're married, to live with one another before they're married. Why would you make such a crazy, huge commitment if you didn't know you were compatible? Why would you jump into something so, so gnarly, so life-altering? It's going to affect so many people around you. You would test everything else out in life. Why not your spouse? Why not your, your future mate? That logic blows my mind because if you're going to marry someone who's willing to be unfaithful with their sexuality before marriage, how do you expect them all of a sudden to only ever want sex within the context of marriage once you're married, right? It doesn't make any sense. If we're not willing to sacrifice outside of marriage, we have no reason to believe we're going to sacrifice inside of marriage. See, the, the world's advice and counsel opposes the wisdom of God. The second area, is that, which is just huge before us in our culture, is pornography. Pornography is not only viewed as bad anymore for, for everyday people, it's, all, it's not bad in the context of marriage or married people separately pursuing pornography. It's just a form of entertainment. Jesus said that even if we look at a woman and lust after her, we've committed adultery in our heart. Adultery is a, a serious, grievous sin that, that separates our heart from God. It's a turning away of God's purposes in our life. It's a, it's a strong, intentional word. And we know that marriages and families were not designed to bear the weight of sex addiction. And so the pursuit of sin in our culture, the wanton pursuit of sin in our culture, opposes the life that God has called us to in Jesus. Because sin separates us from God. And in our sin, we can draw those around us away from God, too. Sin hurts people. It destroys family. It destroys communities. And we're living in a culture that is searching for solutions to the problem of sin. But it's, it's in the futility of our minds that our culture is searching for solutions. Culture says that the answer to, to the devastation of sin is not to stop sinning, not, not to submit to a good God who changes you from the inside out, it's to try harder, right? To be a better person, to find a better spouse, to work harder at being better, be a better version of yourself. Or that we get political and we say we need to regulate that so that we have money to throw out the mess that's left behind it, right? That's the, that's the, the cultural wisdom of the age. See, but God's love extends so deep that he addresses the root, the, the sin that separates us from him. God is willing to go all the way down to the root of the problem in our lives. He's willing to go all the way down to the root of the problem in our families, in our marriages, in our community even. He loves us so much that he meets us in our pride. He meets us in our addiction. He meets us in our hopelessness. He meets us in our rebellion. And he says, I am a better way. Follow me. Jesus' invitation in Matthew chapter 11 Verse 28, he says, come to me. It's an Im invitational language. Jesus is saying, come to me, all who are weary, all who are heavy laden. In other words, all, everyone, if you're, if you're trying to make these decisions and figure out what's best for life on your own, come to me and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon your shoulders and learn from me for I am gentle. I'm humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's a beautiful invitation. And we know that giving ourselves permission to walk in sin, it leads to slavery to sin. But choosing to take Jesus' yoke leads to freedom. It's a choice that we're given. It's a choice. And it's 
This obedience to Jesus that leads to rest and to freedom. Now listen, that is a countercultural idea that we would choose to obey Jesus in order to find freedom and to walk in freedom. That is countercultural. That, that's, that's not what John Lennon said, right, freedom was. That is not what Janis Joplin said freedom was. That is not what Jack Kerouac defines freedom as. See, our culture wants to define freedom as the absence of all constraints, right? True freedom is not having any constraints. Listen, that, that is a, a horrible idea, that freedom is a life without constraints. Because what about the constraints of law, right? The constraints that constrain people from violence and theft and abuse and rape. Those seem to be good constraints, right? What about natural constraints, right? The constraints we have upon ourselves to eat and to consume water and to sleep at regular intervals. So we, we throw those things off to experience freedom, or what about legal constraints, right? Requiring people to drive on one side of the road. That, that seems like a, a good constraint. Or the laws requiring us to pay taxes, right? That, or that provide water service and sewer service and police service and fire service. Those seem like health, that seems like a healthy constraint. Or the constraints of social norms, like personal hygiene. That's a good one, right? Personal space. Single file lines. This is going to sound like a foreign language in California, but the way you function at a four-way stop sign, right? There's, it's actually, there's a pattern to that. But see, nobody wants to live in an unconstrained world. Nobody wants to live in an unconstrained world. Because no constraints in life is not freedom. No constraints is chaos. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, what constraints am I going to submit to in my life? What can, because you're going to constrain yourself to something. You're going to allow something to control you. And God's given us appropriate constraints to help us be who he has created us to be. We were created to obey the God who deeply loves us and wants us to be with him. Now, this is the ancient desire of God that he is still working out in us through his love today. Listen to how Ezekiel records the word of God for his people. In Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19, God says, this, this is thousands of years ago, he says, I will give them one heart. It's the unity that the Apostle Paul has been talking about, the unity we experience in the gospel that the gospel brings us to. He says, and I will put a new spirit within them, right? The Holy Spirit. And I will take the heart, their heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. That's giving them a soft heart, a heart that's able to respond and receive. Verse 20, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Right, that God is doing all of this for us. And in response, we obey. We, we choose to put his constraints on us, not the constraints of the world. And then it says, and then they will be my people and I will be their God. This is a relationship God is inviting us into. A two-sided relationship. God's plan for his people. God's plan for people like me. People who seem to not be able to do anything right apart from God. His plan is to change our hearts. He changes our affections. He changes us, and he points us to the deepest love that we have ever known. He says, here it is. This is what you were created for. Now walk in this. In his letter to the Ephesian church, Paul has been describing a new life in Jesus. He, he's been pointing out the fact that we're changed from the inside out, that you are no longer who you once were. 
This is why in our passage today, Paul is affirming our opposition to sin. He's affirming it. He's saying, as a Christian, I know, as God has let me know, that you no longer walk this way. Guys, we know together, we know together that, that the way that we're to walk the way that we're to encourage one another to walk, the way that we're to to link arms with one another and walk together in. In Christ, we oppose sin, opposing the way we once lived. Our identity changed when we met Jesus. And Paul today is saying, so leave the past behind. Walk, walk in your new life. And the same grace that saves you is the same grace that is available today to lead you to walk in your new identity. And today the Holy Spirit is calling his church to leave the past behind. Man, I've needed to hear that so many times in my life because I'm like, I'm like a dog, you know, I'll turn back to something. And I don't turn back because it's good. I turn back because I'm forgetful or I turn back because I've opened a little door and I've taken two steps and then I find myself back in an old pattern. And if that's you today, God is saying, come back, return. There's grace for that today. God is still calling us to walk out this new life in Christ, still offering forgiveness, still offering grace. He's still offering us that a next step, a new step in relationship with him. Listen, you might have fallen. Maybe you're someone who's in today that is like, man, I'm too ashamed. I'm too far gone. This has happened so many times in my life. I can't get back up again. I'm a shadow of who I once was, and I'm just going to live my life in the shadows. Listen, that is not the truth. Jesus paid the penalty for all of your sins on the cross. You are not too far gone. Jesus covers the distance that you might have fallen. Today, Jesus is saying, come to me. A weary one. Come to me. And if you don't know Jesus today, maybe you're still living that life apart from God. You need to hear that God's love and God's grace are for you today. Today, sitting before you is a choice, the opportunity to receive the love of God. The love of God which changes our hearts and our affections and empowers us to walk by his grace. The love of God sits before you in the form of an invitation to receive Jesus, receive the gift of God for new life. Turn to Jesus today. Give him your drama. Ask him to soften your heart. And church, we're going to respond in worship now, responding to the the word of God. Encouragement today is to to be with God. Wherever, Wherever you find yourself in your walk with the Lord today, enjoy him. Be still before God. And know that he is God. And it's good news because when God is God, I don't have to be God. When God is God, my future is his problem. And I can trust and rely on him. And so as we worship today, turn to the God who created you and loves you and is calling you to himself today. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. and God, I thank you that you do love us. In the same way that I've seen my selfish heart grow, and I see it most specifically in the area of my kids, God, you have grown in me your Father's heart. I'm growing to be more like you in that way. God, I pray that you would cause us this morning to be aware of your love, the love of the Father for his children. Lord, that we would gather to you 
that we would do like my little four-year-old always is trying to do with me, crawl up onto your lap, to be near to you, to lean into you, to hear your heartbeat. Pray, God, for your grace to respond to your word by the power of your spirit today. Lead our hearts to worship in Jesus' name. Amen. The carpets are up front for you to assume a a posture of of worship. If it's been a while or or maybe you've never have gotten on your knees before God, it's it's a beautiful way to put your body in a posture for your spirit to follow in and putting your body in a posture of submission and and allowing your heart and your spirit to follow is an incredible good way to enter into worship. Communion elements are up on the front of the stage to remember and to receive and to know the love of God to the sacrifice of Jesus. All Christians are invited to come to the table of the Lord and have communion. Men and the women on my right and left are here to pray for you, to point you to Jesus. So come and respond as we worship the Lord.